The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. It can be found on page 911 in the Black Bibles. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came out to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, we must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened." For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Juliana. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is John Trapp, and it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, just wanted to say real quick, thank you for um, all the prayers and encouragement that you've sent my way. I, I shared with y'all last week that I'm having some health issues, lost hearing in my right ear. It has not come back. Um, no, really no big updates, but um, I will just say that this trial has been another, another time in which God has reminded me of the way that he loves us through his body, uh, through the church. And you guys have, have been an embodiment of God's encouragement and grace and love to me. So thank you for that. I really am so grateful for you guys. Um, you know, we, uh, we sang this earlier um, in the first stanza of Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. Um, but there are many of us who may be here today who are feeling 
either afflicted or bowed down with fruitless sorrow or um, guilty of having broken the law and feeling convicted. And what I love about this song is it doesn't say, now get your act together. But instead, it says, look to Jesus. And so that's what we do every week when we come to Christ the King and come to this time in our worship service is we open up God's word and we ask him that he would help us to look and see Jesus. So let's pray and ask that now. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and I pray for, um, for the people who are here now gathered around it. Um, Lord, you know where we are. You know those of us who are here now feeling cynical or skeptical, those of us who are here feeling exhausted or tired. Lord, you know those of us who are here doubting or even angry at you. And Father, we thank you that your word actually gives us categories that you, um, that you show us that you welcome us to come with all of those kinds of thoughts and emotions. And so uh, we come to you and we ask that you would meet us where we are um, as individuals, but also as a family. And we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, you love transformation stories, um, like Extreme Home Makeover, or pretty much any show on HGTV, it's all transformation stories, The Biggest Loser. Um, you may not know this about me, but I am, I'm a transformation story. When I was a kid, I didn't eat vegetables. And when I say I didn't eat vegetables, I don't mean like I ate them sometimes, I mean completely avoided them at all times, even something that resembled a vegetable, like a potato that's not actually a vegetable, wouldn't eat it, wouldn't come close to it. And, you know, drove my mom crazy. My friends thought it was hilarious. They would like try to sneak like a piece of spinach or something into my sandwich so I would gag and they'd laugh at me and all that stuff. But kids, just so you know, like that gets less cool when you're in high school, in college, not eating vegetables. So uh, when Chrissy and I, uh, my, my now wife, Chrissy Trapp, Chrissy and I got engaged, She kind of had this moment. She looked across the table and she said, John, I want you to live and you need to learn to eat vegetables. Like we gotta work on this. And so she came up with a plan that every year I would work on one vegetable. So year one was the year of lettuce. And anytime I would sit down to eat a meal that she prepared, there would be lettuce somewhere involved in that meal. And by the end of the year, didn't love lettuce, but I could eat it. And then on New Year's Day, I come into our kitchen and there's four paper bags sitting on the table. She's like, pick one. I was like, I don't wanna pick one. <laughs> Cause I knew a green bean was in one of those and I was terrified. And I picked one and it was a carrot. It was the year of carrots. So for that whole year I had to learn to eat carrots and so on, so forth for about four to five years. And then by like the fifth year, I was like, I like vegetables, I can do this, I can eat vegetables. And I'll never forget going back home and I went to uh, go get some supper with a friend of mine and the waitress came to take our order and I said, I'll have a salad. And my friend looked across the table at me and he said, what happened to you? And I think when we look at this passage, we should ask that same question about John and particularly Peter. What happened to you? A transformation has occurred in these men's life. And 
So I want to look at three points with you. First, the offensiveness of a transforming faith. Second, the witness of a transforming faith. And third, the expectation of a transforming faith. The offensiveness, the witness, and the expectation of a transforming faith. So the setting is Peter and John have just healed this cripple man. He'd been crippled for 40 years. Everyone in the neighborhood knew who he was. It's this amazing miracle. They heal him in Jesus' name. And then Peter preaches the gospel to all of these people about what Jesus has done. And 5,000 men and then women and children all become Christians. But this bothers some folks. If you look at verse 1, you can see who some of them are. First off, you see that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees are all there and they're all bothered by this witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me tell you a little bit about who these people are. First off, the Sadducees, these would be like, kind of like the religious liberal type of that day. Um, they didn't believe in an afterlife or the resurrection or spiritual world, but they did believe in being very moral people. And so they, they're kind of like this educated class. You can kind of imagine what that kind of person would be like today. But also we have here priests who are gathered around them. Now these would have been super religious, very conservative in their views, and they're bothered too. It's kind of crazy that the priests and the Sadducees are both bothered. But not only that, but also there's these political figures, this temple guard, these rulers, they're all gathered around, you can see in verse 5 too, these political powers, they're gathered around and they're all bothered and they're, the thing that they have in common is that they're bothered by the witness of Jesus Christ because it's offensive. The message is offensive to them because Peter is making exclusive claims. Look at verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Exclusive claims like the one Peter is making here, they are disruptive. They're offensive. And I want you to see that the leaders don't do what maybe many in our culture would say you should do when someone makes a religious claim. The religious, the religious leaders don't hear this and say, oh, you know what, Peter, John, that's great that that works for you. That is so great that that's true for you. That's not true for me, but there's lots of different ways to get to heaven. There's lots of different ways that people can be saved. And that works for you, that's awesome. They don't make that conclusion. They are offended by these exclusive claims that are made. But what you will hear in our culture, and, and friends, as someone who is a campus minister for the last seven years at, on, on the university, kids, students, listen, you are going to face this. People are going to tell you that there's lots of different ways to get to heaven, or there's lots of different ways to be saved, or for God to be happy with you, or whatever. Tim Keller uses an illustration that I think is really helpful that gets at this way of thinking that we have in our modern world. Oftentimes, the way that there being lots of different paths to God is described is to use this illustration of 
blind men and an elephant. So go with me for a second, okay? I want you to imagine we've got a big elephant right here, big imaginary elephant, and these five blind men who don't know anything about an elephant, they've never experienced an elephant, they're brought in, and each of them are brought to different parts of the elephant. First blind man grabs the elephant's trunk, and he's asked, what's an elephant? And he says, an elephant is kind of like a snake, and it's long and skinny and wiggly. But then the second blind man is holding on to the elephant's tusk. He said, that's not what an elephant is. An elephant is smooth and it's sharp at the end. But the third blind man's holding on to the ear and he says, no, it's not, it's flappy, it's not sharp. But the fourth one is pushing up against the side of the elephant. He's like, no, an elephant is like a wall. And the fifth one's holding on to the elephant's tail. He's like, no, it's like this long stringy thing. That's what an elephant is. And the way this illustration is used is to say, All of these blind men are describing the same thing. They're all describing an elephant. They're just getting at it from different vantage points. And that's kind of what religions are like. God is like this big elephant, and Hindus and Buddhists and Jews and Christians, they're all kind of grabbing at the same God just from a different vantage point, but it's all the same thing. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But here's the problem. The only way to know that there's five blind religions all grabbing at the same God is for there to be one person who sees clearly all of it happening. For there to be one person who sees that all five of them actually have it wrong and I am right. Do you hear that religious inclusivism, that everyone's kind of doing the same thing, actually is sneaky, exclusive. That only I am right. To paraphrase Tim Keller, saying all religions are equally valid is itself a very white Western view based in the European Enlightenment's idea of knowledge and values. And why should that view be privileged over anyone else's? You see, all religious claims, even even the claim that they all end up, all religions go to the same God, even that claim is exclusive because you're saying everyone else is wrong. And that claim, I would suggest to you, is at best inconsistent and at worst hypocritical since you're doing the very same thing that you say everyone else is doing. So, the common objection to this, though, Here's the common objection. What about all the good Buddhists? What about all the good Hindus or the good Jews who are just like doing their best and they were born into to this religion and they're trying, to, they're trying to follow the best they can? And you know what? I, I totally get why that question comes to mind. And I have that question sometimes bubble up inside of me. But when that question bubbles up inside of me, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm actually doing? I'm being super exclusive. Because that question is ignoring this. What about all the bad people? What about, and by the way, there are no good people. There are no good people. So the only, the only way, here's, here's, what I want, here's what I want you to, to think. 
what sounds, what sounds very exclusive that Jesus is the only way to God, which it is, it is exclusive. It's actually the most inclusive. What sounds more exclusive? Be really good and you'll get into heaven or what's that, what sounds more inclusive? Be really good or you'll get into heaven or for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That whoever believes in him. Think about who made up the early church, by the way. Remember? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We've got people who were demon-possessed. You've got people who doubted Jesus, who denied Jesus, who ran away from Jesus. The bad people. The gospel is for the bad people, like me and like you. The exclusive truth of Jesus and his inclusive love for Peter totally changes Peter. And you see that in second point, the witness of Peter. And if you're a note taker, there's two sub points that I want you to, to think about that characterize Peter's witness here. One is boldness and the second is humility. And it's really important that those go together because that is what the witness of a transforming faith sounds like. It has boldness and humility. So first, boldness. Verse five, Peter appears in a place that a couple months ago completely terrified him. He appears before this ruling council, also known as the Sanhedrin. When you went to before the Sanhedrin in the first century, do you know what you would usually wear? Funeral clothes. What do you think that communicated? Good luck, you're meeting with the Sanhedrin. Might not go well. Peter walks in and he's standing in front of Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. All the people who a couple of months before were seated in the same kind of semicircle with another man in front of them, Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter saw that scene because he was outside by a fire, watching it happen, and he was so afraid of what was happening, he denied to a little slave girl that he was even associated with Jesus. And now a couple months later, Peter, who's like, I would imagine maybe going through some PTSD, walking into this scene, he's seen it before. He's stepping in and now instead, completely bold. It says they were amazed at his boldness in verse 12. And this is where Peter is. And he's totally different. He's been transformed. And it's kind of crazy. Think about this. If Peter's lying, like if Jesus is dead and Peter's, Peter knows that Jesus is like in a grave somewhere, what he's telling these people is totally absurd. He's saying, you murdered my friend and my friend will forgive you. Come to my friend. Why would he say that if his friend's in the grave? Peter has been completely transformed and he's bold. What keeps us from, our bold, from boldness like this? Well, if you're like me, oftentimes you feel inside you like this need to, to have all the answers. Like I can't, I can't talk to somebody about this unless I've got like, I can out-philosophize, out-theologize, out-sociologize, out-psychologize. I've got to be ready with all the arguments. But do you see what it says about Peter and John as they stand before 
this high class group of rulers. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. People aren't going to, to, at least in this story, see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel by them being amazing. And you know what? I think oftentimes when I imagine like getting to share the gospel with someone, the way that I want it to go is that like, you know, I've been hanging around, like seeing my neighbor. They see me like being like really awesome all the time. They see me going and like exercising well, um, helping the lady across the street with her garbage, um, walking my dogs and like talking really nicely to my kids all the time. And eventually my neighbor just like comes up to me and they're just like, man, what is your secret? You are so great. And then at that moment, I will say, I'm a Christian. (laughs) Like that's how I imagine the gospel being shared. But what if it's not through our strength that Jesus is going to be made known? What if it's actually through our weakness? Humility. Peter stands in front of them and he says in verse 11, listen, you rejected Jesus. But then the very next thing, so these people, he's standing, he's saying, you rejected Jesus, you killed Jesus. Verse 12, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which, keyword, we must be saved. Peter, standing in the midst of his enemies who've killed his friend, identifies with them in their need. We must be saved by Jesus alone. There's no other way. My, uh, my son Owen and I have gotten really into collecting baseball cards again. Um, just a fun nostalgic thing we've been doing together. And I went to the card shop here in town. And it reminded me uh, yesterday when we were there of a story. When I was in high school, I actually worked at a card shop. And the lady who worked there, I got to become buddies with her and um, she never went to church uh, at least when I knew her and so I kind of I was going through like a lot of spiritual growth in my life and really fired up and I was like I'm gonna ask I'm gonna invite Miss Patsy to come to church with me so I went kind of summon up the courage and I I said Miss Patsy would you ever would you ever come to church with me and she immediately just goes I'm never going there that place is full of hypocrites and, you know, 16-year-old John Trapp, I'm just like, okay, that's, gotcha. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and you know, like, when you leave, or maybe, like, after a conversation, you think, ah, oh, that's what I should have said. You went out, I, I got it. You know what I should have said? Exactly. It's full of hypocrites. That's why I have to go. That's why, I, like, I'm there. You should come, too. The way that we share our testimony, what if, what, listen, when you think about people in your life, maybe in your family, maybe it's a grandchild or a child or, or a parent or a coworker or a sibling that you really want to know Jesus. But the thought of sharing Jesus with them and talking to them about faith Like even thinking about it right now, you can feel like the anxiety rising in you. 
What if the posture that you took with them was instead of telling them all the reasons that they need Jesus, you share with them all the reasons that you do? What if you even began the conversation asking for their consent? Would you be willing to let me share with you about all the things that are messed up about me and why, why Jesus is so precious to me? Do you see how that would shift the conversation from one of defensiveness from them of like, this person who's super religious is coming at me with all these things that are wrong with me, to instead, this person who loves me is sharing all the brokenness and need and how God has actually met them in that. You see how that changes the conversation? And then ask, if you have the conversation, finish it and don't feel like you have to say everything all at once. Maybe say, thank you for letting me share that with you. I'd love for this to be an open dialogue and for us to talk more about this whenever you want. Leave it open. Humility. It's not about you. It's not about you winning them. It's not about, it's not about us, right? This is the opposite of how we naturally use our boldness and humility, by the way. The way that we naturally do use our boldness and humility is we are bold to use our strength for our own selfish gain. And if there's something that we feel like we need to be humble about, we hide it. But what we see Peter modeling here and what the gospel does is it transforms us is instead we are bold to use our strength to serve others, even when it's scary. And if there's something for us to be humble about, we share it instead of hiding it. Because if the resurrection is real, it changes everything. And this is, friends, the thing I want you to know about the expectation, final point, of transforming faith is that there will be threats of persecution. Listen, if there is... If the Bible is true and there's a battle between good and evil that's happening in our world, then that means that the evil one hates this. The evil one hates transforming faith. The evil one hates the exclusivity of being saved by Christ alone. The evil one hates the witness of the good news of Jesus. He traffics in fear, so he hates boldness. And he's self-consumed, so he hates humility. And if you bear God's image, which you do, he hates you. So how do you face that? Um, I was listening to a podcast, and a woman named Michaela was telling a story about growing up in a large family. And her two little brothers that she had were named Victor and Oscar. Now, Oscar was six, Victor was four. And Michaela said her favorite thing to do was to scare them. So one day she's at a store and she saw this Wolverine mask and she bought it and began plotting her attack. And for about a week she assembled this costume. She got her mom's old scarf, her dad's old ratty t-shirt, gets the mask on. And about a week later, after little four-year-old Victor and six-year-old Oscar have gone to bed with all the lights out. This is evil. 
(laughs) She puts on the costume and begins to tiptoe into their bedroom. And she's just about to jump onto little four-year-old Victor's bed when this massive dark figure sits up from the bed and it's her mother who says, you get out of here right now. Michaela is terrified. She runs out of the door and she just waits for her mom to come and light her up. And her mom never does. And they never spoke of this for two years. (laughs) Two years later, Michaela is left in charge her, her mom and dad are, are, are going out for the night. She gives them some chores to do. And Michaela's super annoyed. She wants to be out with her friends. Why do I have to do all this stuff with Oscar and Victor? And she's telling them that we got to get all these chores done. I'm so annoyed. Why is mom being like this? And, and little Victor's like, don't say that about mommy. Mommy's awesome. She's like, what are you talking about? Why do you always, you always stick up for mom. Why do you always say this about mom? Why do you think mom's so awesome? And Victor goes, well, Two years ago, I was lying in bed and this wolverine monster came into my room and was about to get me and mommy just sat up and said, get out of here right now and he ran away. Now, I want you to think, how safe did little Victor feel every night when he went to bed? The person who loves him the most can tell wolverines to run away, and they do. Why are Peter and John standing in front of these people who've killed their Lord? Because they've seen Jesus go into the teeth of death and come back. The resurrection's true. Jesus is risen, and they know it, and so they're boldly proclaiming in humility as people who've been transformed by the good news of this loving God who's entered into time and space and defeated death and paid for their sin. And they're bearing witness to the good news of Jesus. And so what this means is that if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. It means that you can face fear. Listen, students, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. We want you to come to this church and enjoy this church. We want this to be a fun place for you. But this, our goal is not to entertain you always. Our goal is to prepare you for a battle. You're going into a world that's filled with monsters in some ways. But what we want you to know and what what we're trying to do for you is, and for one another is to remind each other every single week when we come here that the one who loves us, the one who loves us has defeated the monsters. He is Lord. And so when you're in high school and it feels really hard to be a Christian, and you're afraid of all the rejection that you're going to experience by following Jesus, what we want you to hold on to is the resurrection. Because Jesus has defeated death. You don't have to be afraid of what the cool, mean girl thinks. If you're afraid of not being married one day, if you're here and you're single and you're afraid of being single, what the resurrection tells us is that there is a greater marriage waiting. 
the marriage supper of the Lamb, because Jesus has won it, and there's a better union that awaits you and is yours already, and will be fully and finally in the new kingdom. If you are afraid of being wrong in a disagreement with a coworker or a spouse, what the resurrection does is it lets you let go of your rightness and need to be right. Because Jesus has won your entry into heaven and your hope isn't in you being right, it's in his righteousness on your behalf. The resurrection just changes everything for us. And so friends, what I want you to know is that you will face fear and suffering, but Christian, you can. We have the resurrected Lord at our side. He'll never leave you. And one day he will make everything right. And by his blood, Jesus has paid for your judgment. It's finished. And you get that by faith alone, not by being good enough. Salvation comes by him alone. It is exclusive, but his grace is available for all. It's radically inclusive. And that's an invitation to anyone who wants it and it will transform your life and it's worth it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that your grace is, uh, is for needy people like us. We pray that you would help us um, to be bold and to be humble in the ways that we um, testify to your goodness in our lives. We pray for those in our lives that we want to know you. Help us um, to be ambassadors of your grace to them with, uh, with humility and boldness and love. And we pray that you would do this um, for your glory and for our good and for the good of the world and our neighbor. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.